This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Mike Ross filling in for Dave. We expect Dave back here on Tuesday after the Thanksgiving weekend. And speaking of Thanksgiving, I am very thankful. We are very thankful to be uh, working with a whole bunch of pros around here. In case you haven't figured it out yet, we're having some technical difficulties today that we are plowing through. The show must go on. Doesn't matter. It's Friday. We don't take the day off. We're going to fly through this and we're going to we're going to work through it all. But uh, we are working at it behind the scenes. So we appreciate your patience and appreciate the patience of Joita and Michelle who are working through this with me uh, alongside here. So. When we were wrapping up our last segment, Michelle, Joita was talking about that proprietary uh, uh, software issue oh, and, and equipment oh, yes. issue. And, and you wanted to, to sort of just circle back to that because of an experience you had. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I, it's such a good point that Joita raises, and it's one that does not get discussed that much. Uh, as uh, Joita was saying, if once you're in the door, people assume that that's that. But no, that's not the case. But what I have to tell is a... A good news story about how that situation can evolve if you have enough buy-in from the employer. So that was very much the case. When I arrived at Canadian Press, there was all kinds of proprietary software in place, some of which worked with JAWS, some of which definitely did not. And for a long time, that I, I created extra work for editors by virtue of the fact that I could not file through our normal content management system. I would have to write it in you know, a notepad file or a Word file and email it to people, and then they would have to reformat stuff because of... Anyway, it was a whole process, and that went on for years, and it actually limited the jobs I could do uh, in terms of editing, because if I couldn't access the the rest of the content in the system, there was only so much I could do with it. Uh, Fast forward, you know, 12 or so years, 2018 or thereabouts, and there's finally talk of introducing a new content management system at Canadian Press, and there was a consultation group right out of the gate. I was not part of that group, but some of my friends were. And they started sounding the alarm about accessibility right away. And CP took that seriously, and they took it to the developers they were working with on this other content management system, who acknowledged, well, no, we've never really thought about accessibility because there haven't been any disabled people in the newsrooms that we've dealt with, or screen reader users, I should say, in the newsrooms that we've dealt with. But that's cool. Let's do this. Let's work with your screen reader user and make it accessible. And that is exactly what they did. They did a lot of back-end work with me, uh, beta testing, all of that kind of stuff. Meanwhile, the proprietary software at Canadian Press has become more accessible over time. So at the same time as I'm working with developers to build a content management system that can be rolled out across other newsrooms that is more accessible, and it is now, I was also finally able to hone my editing skills. And without access to those content management systems and the real content there, I would never have had a chance to work on my editing skills, and I definitely would not have the job I have today. So proprietary software can be a huge barrier, but if the right attitudes are in place, really cool things can happen. Let me just circle back with both of you. The first thing I asked about from the beginning was uh, the fact that there was a lack of government supports for people with disabilities who are unable to work or underemployed. Um, So let me bring it back to that and just ask each of you, and I'll start with Joita, uh, what do you think uh, can be done at a policy level 
to ensure that people with disabilities are not underemployed? I think we start with the social assistance program. And as Michelle pointed out, and I alluded to as well, the way it's set up right now is the instant you start working, uh, you start to experience clawbacks. And that system, the way it's set up right now, is so punitive that it can be a massive disincentive to people. When I got my first job, it wasn't you know, a full-time job. I was a relief worker. That means they called me in when they needed me. And so some months I'd get you know, a lot of work, and then there'd be other months when I had no work. And so what happened with that ODSP payment was they would inevitably overpay. Uh, because I was filing my uh, my little stub and saying, hey, no, look, I actually had, you know, X number of hours of work this week. But because it wasn't a consistent amount, inevitably we fell into that hole where I had been overpaid. And the fact that you might owe the government and you may, as a person with a disability, someday, God forbid, be in a situation where you need to be on social assistance again but have not paid out your outstanding debt, it is a terrifying prospect to have that safety net taken away from you. The other big problem with the way the transition is bungled from social assistance to uh, paid work is often for employees with disabilities, and we're, you know, both Michelle and I uh, have visible disabilities. Um, I'm not sure if Michelle has any chronic health conditions, but I, I don't think I have any that prevent me from working a full-time job. But for people who have severe chronic health conditions, sometimes they can only work one day in the week or half a day in the week. That's all they can manage. But the way our social assistance system is set up right now, it might actually be more expensive to go into the office compared to the wage you're bringing home. So it really depends on the kind of disability you have. And the last thing I'll say about the social, social assistance system is that a number of workplaces try but don't often provide health care benefits to people with disabilities. And that can be a huge impediment for people with, again, chronic health conditions. If you need expensive medication and you're not on a company health plan or you don't have private health insurance of some kind, you rely on health insurance from ODSP and navigating that process, not to get the income supports, but just to have the benefits from everybody I've heard across the board. It's an unequivocal nightmare. Now, my experiences are based with Ontario Disability Support Program. That's the one that I am most familiar with. Uh, but I would hazard a guess that these problems uh, happen to take place across the country. But if there is a province that's getting it right, and they're managing the transition to paid work better, I would certainly like to hear about it. But generally, there's been great dissatisfaction with how social assistance um, programs, in fact, keep people poor and prevent people with disabilities who might be able to work from seeking full-time employment. Michelle? I agree with all of what Joita said. Uh, you're right, Joita, to, to guess that I don't have any other chronic conditions uh, besides my visible disability, which is has been a huge help. And on top of what you talked about in terms of chronic illness, I, re I refer also to people with episodic disabilities. Their work situation might change a lot depending on what's going on with their disability at a given time. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of recognition for that in the way that social assistance programs are applied. I don't have much to add to anything Joita said on that front, other than to say that I have yet to hear of any province that has a nice smooth process and where people feel empowered by that particular program rather than barely sustained by it. Um, another little just small wrinkle I will add is that some some provinces have the means of, of providing some assistance to people to keep up with technology for their disability. A lot of those programs need some serious overhauling and this is one that I think 
has a bearing on employment to some degree and that it, it, having the right kind of tech enables people to, to look for work, to keep their skills sharp, to say nothing of all the independent living benefits that come with that, that that don't have to do with employment. But there needs to be a, some major rethinking done on how some of these programs are executed. Programs, for instance, that don't support or cover smartphones are just like so antiquated. I don't even have the words for that. Uh, find me a single person who won't claim that a smartphone is one of the most crucial tools they have today and find me a workplace that won't acknowledge as much too. So that's a, another area where I would like to see a little bit more uh, advancement and progress made in the, in the months ahead. Let's talk briefly about the employment landscape out there because that is changing uh, right across the board. Some advocates and programs uh, have as their aim, their goal uh, to empower people with disabilities to start their own businesses. So I'm wondering about that as a strategy, how you guys feel about that. And if you're aware of people who've gone out and done just that. Juida? Kevin Shaw, mind your own business. Kevin is just an incredibly versatile, smart and talented person who this is what he does. He creates mentorship opportunities for people with disabilities, uh, entrepreneurship opportunities. Really, he should be the person talk he, he about entrepreneurship and disability. Um, he has, I think it's a really good idea if you've got the stomach for it, which I don't. I need to have my paycheck coming in, you know, however many times a month, and I need the reliability of knowing it's going to be there. Um, and I don't want to have to hustle in that way. But I think there are a lot of people with disabilities with impressive skill sets that have the fortitude to create opportunities for themselves and do things that they really love uh, by being self-employed. What I would like to see on that front is greater support for people with disabilities and entrepreneurs in general. Uh, many were hard hit during the pandemic. I would hazard a guess that the people with disabilities uh, who are self-employed were especially hard hit because, you know, you were getting nailed on both sides. Um, but I think maybe making efforts towards access to easy financing and other forms of support for entrepreneurs with disabilities would go a long way in helping people to not just start a business, but to eventually be able to scale up. Michelle? Yeah, strongly agree with everything Joita said. I think it actually sends a really great empowering message that we don't hear a lot. When we talk about employment, we there seems to be a bit of an assumption that a lot of the, dis the disabled employees or prospective employees are going to be coming in at pretty entry level or low level positions. And we definitely don't hear a lot of talk about advancement through the ranks. And we certainly don't see people with disabilities represented very broadly at the upper echelons of most organizations. So having a message of, of, of real entrepreneurship and empowerment to do, do something yourself kind of runs counter to that message in a really good way, I think. And I think it's a wonderful message to send. It's not one that I could ever really avail myself of. I, uh, I'm like Joita. I, I like the stability. I definitely don't have the entrepreneurial spirit. I don't even think I could hack it as a freelancer, if we're being completely honest. <laughs> um, so it wouldn't be my particular path. But I think it's great to have that option open and I hope it uh, I hope it expands and I hope a more importantly that a lot of those businesses succeed. Judy, you used the word hustle and that that's where we're going next and, and just the whole idea of how the gig economy works and and people who've got these quote unquote side hustles. I I hate that term it, it, I don't know. It just sounds bad as far as I'm concerned. But it, it's the term that people throw out there. Do you have a side hustle? Is it something you've ever thought about? And do, do you consider 
any because like someone like me who's got who does two, three, four different things, I don't consider them side hustles. But do you consider anything you've ever done as a side hustle? Not a chance. I haven't even when I've actively tried to consider things side hustles. I haven't been able to because I really love the work that I do. I'm very emotionally invested in the work that I do. It's not just a way for me to make, quote unquote, more money. It's often a way for me to do something that I'm really passionate about. I work on the news panel or I put out the pulse first and foremost because I want to be on the news panel and because I want to see the pulse succeed because I really believe in a long form interview show for people with disabilities that airs coast to coast to coast from Canada and beyond. You know, if I didn't believe in that, I wouldn't do it. And similarly, I work at a housing not-for-profit, not because I couldn't have worked somewhere else if I had so chosen. It's because I believe in housing as a human right. And it's very hard to boil down your life's work and your passion to a side hustle. Uh, because as you said, there is a there's a twinge of something negative, as you said, Mike. I actually, I'm glad you said it because I, I don't think people, the people kind of fling that term around mm-hmm. very carelessly and they don't consider the implications of calling something a hustle because for a lot of people, the quote-unquote side hustle is the way that they're paying their bills. It's in fact not a side hustle mm-hmm. anymore. And really, the fact of the matter is you can make that arg- argument and I'll grant you that for a lot of people with disabilities, the flexibility and the ability to work more when you can and less when you can't, you know, all of that is fine and dandy, but side hustles or contract work um, and these, you know, that model of being an independent contractor has replaced so many full-time jobs with benefits that people, that we've seen those jobs disappear and we've seen the side hustle crop up. You know, think about Uber as a good example. We used to have cabs and cabbies and they did this, you know, day in and day out. And that industry has been, I wouldn't say decimated, but certainly seen a significant uh, downsizing because of Uber where you've got drivers basically being able to hop into a car and get on the app and drive. I mean, there was an interview on Metro Morning, and the woman said, who who was interviewed said, if you have a pulse, you can drive an Uber. Wow. Michelle? Except for except for people with disabilities. Yeah. Again. Yeah. Um, this is where I think it's really interesting to, to talk about how this is another element of employment in which this demographic has been left behind. There's a lot of assumptions around who can do side hustle work, some of it would act. I think it would be great, for instance, to see if there was a wheelchair user who wanted to run their Uber with an accessible vehicle, because we just don't have that many of them. But that would be one person in a huge pool. Impact would be limited. And that would be seen as, as something cool that just happened rather than something that the company was actively pursuing or actively prioritizing. This would be one person's initiative to try and do this because they have the means to do it. A lot of people don't. So I think any discussion of the gig economy uh, has not yet caught up to the needs of people with disabilities. I mean, it has. frankly, those needs haven't even been fully accounted for in the mainstream job market, let alone the, the, sure. the gig economy. So. Sure. It's it's another sort of point of, of frustration for me. At the same time, I, if you're talking about side uh, jobs, side gigs, mm-hmm. other than Uber and the like, that could be a way to address some of the issues that Joita and I raised before, the face by people with chronic disabilities or episodic disabilities. Um, have, as it might provide them with some of the flexibility that they might not have in another setup, but. The stars really have to align for that. And there has to be more elements of luck, I think, for most disabled Canadians to succeed in securing the kind of employment that they need and want than there should be. 
Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hadjar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.